and wanting to walk in his ways and live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're just joining us this morning, the past few weeks, we've been going through a series that's about the hymn Amazing Grace. It's a hymn that everyone knows, whether you've been in church a million times or this is your first time ever, or if a person has never been in church, you've heard this song. And I've told you a lot about the background of the song so far. I've told you about how John Newton, the man who wrote the song, came to write it on this snowy winter day in only England, a little town in England back in 1773, 250 years ago this month. That's why we're focusing on this hymn right now. 250 years old this month. And I've told you about how this song has grown to be one of the most, um, one of the most recorded songs in history. And it's performed million time, uh, millions of times around the world every year. It's been recorded by everyone from Aretha Franklin to Beyonce. Everybody from Gomer Pyle from the Andy Griffith Show to Rod Stewart. And everybody in between. They've all recorded this song. But what I haven't told you yet is the secondary story that was taking place the exact same time John Newton was writing the hymn Amazing Grace. One of John Newton's closest friends was a man named William Cooper. And John, that's John Newton there on the left, William Cooper on the right. William Cooper, if, if you know anything about poetry, he's a super famous British poet in his day and today. He lived in Olney at the time where John Newton was, and they were very good friends, very close friends, both believers, both trying to walk with the Lord. This is the house that Cooper lived in, and that's what it looks like today. It's the Cooper and Newton Museum today. So we're all going to jump on the magic school bus and go over there because I'm dying to go. It would be so cool to go to that museum. But it's a museum today celebrating both of their lives. But behind the house, William Cooper had this little, he called it his summer house, that he would write in. You can see a picture of him on the, on the left. And you can see the church where John Newton was pastor in the, in the background. And there's his little summer house today on the right. A lot of um, literary people make pilgrimages to this place now. It's, it's a famous, famous place because he was such a famous writer. But he worked with Newton to write a lot of hymns. They put a book together called The Olney Hymns. And a very famous book that was published around 1779. And they wrote hymns in there that we still sing today. Not just Amazing Grace, but William Cooper wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, that we still sing in our church today. Many others. But without that book, we wouldn't have Amazing Grace. Well, that Sunday, Cooper, William Cooper, was in the worship service at John Newton's church when he first introduced Amazing Grace. The first time it was ever sung in the world. He heard John Newton preach from 1 Chronicles 17 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. He was one of the first people to ever sing Faith's Review and Expectation, the original title to what we know now as Amazing Grace. But unfortunately, that was the last time William Cooper ever attended a worship service the rest of his life. He was a man who experienced seasons of deep depression in his life, deep depression. And walking home after service that day, he felt himself slipping into another bout of depression. He could tell it was coming. He struggled his way home. His mind was growing darker on his way home. And as he got home, he wanted to express the feelings and doubts that he was thinking and how it was connect connecting with his faith. So he sat down and wrote the hymn, 
God moves in a mysterious way. And he just continued to go into this downward spiral that night. Just as, this is January 1st, 1773. Downward spiral, darker and darker in his mind. To the point that late that night, in the middle of the night, John Newton was called to William Cooper's house. Because as he went in that downward spiral, he was thinking crazy thoughts about God, hard thoughts about himself, and even attempted suicide that night. Was unsuccessful. They called Newton. Newton came to his house, cleaned him up, cared for him. And you can read through Newton's diaries that we have today and see night after night he was at his house to care for him, to help him, to speak truth to him, to love him. And he was a faithful friend to him for many weeks and many months until William Cooper passed away in 1800. But I don't think it's a stretch to think that when John Newton was writing Amazing Grace and when they sang it that morning, when he was preaching the sermon about the song that morning, not only was John Newton thinking of himself with that song, but he was very likely thinking of his friend, William Cooper. Especially when he wrote verse 3. And this is the verse that we're looking at this morning. Verse 3 of Amazing Grace says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that led me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We're going to better understand what Newton meant by these words and how we experience the truth of this today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 together. So turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a shorter letter in the New Testament. And if you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 970. 970, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians 12, as we, I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. It's the small section we're looking at this morning. And we're, as, we, as we read this together, think about how it's not only that God's grace saves us. That's what we've talked about the past couple weeks. But it's also that God's grace sustains us. It's not just that God's grace rescues us. It's also that God's grace carries us throughout our entire lives. And you'll hear this starting in Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the, refel- of the revelations, we'll talk about what that is in a minute, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. So as we think about God's sustaining grace, his grace that carries us, The first thing we're going to see is God's purpose in our trials. God's purpose in our trials. 
I know what I read there in verse 7. We're jumping in not just in the middle of a book, but in the middle of a paragraph. So it's kind of hard to immediately understand what's going on. But the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, we learned about his story a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, then you can go back and, and listen to that. But the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and at the beginning of chapter 12, he describes this time that the Lord saw fit to give him visions, or another word he uses here, revelations of heaven. We don't know the specifics. He doesn't write the specifics of what he saw or what he experienced. But Paul describes it as being caught up into paradise. Whatever the specifics were, it was an incredible experience that he probably even struggled to put words to that we could understand. But you can think about how this kind of experience would affect a person. You could easily grow this sense of superiority about you. I got to see something no one else has seen. I got to experience something no one on earth has ever experienced. Or this desire to see more. God, I saw a glimpse of that. I want to see it again. I want to see it again. But Paul, led by God, leaves us today with a different focus. He doesn't go on and on and on about what he saw. He directs our focus somewhere else. Look look with me again at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. The Lord knew that any person, Paul included, that had an experience like that would be tempted to feel proud or superior or better. So Paul says God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from thinking of himself more highly than he ought. It would not be the best use of our time for us to speculate about what the thorn in the flesh was. No one knows for sure, and anyone that says that they know for sure, it's not true. It's fine to think about it and have ideas and theories, but that's not the point of what Paul is saying. The point, and we can still get the point without understanding exactly what it was, because whatever it was, it was something that made Paul's life hard. It made ministry difficult. It caused him pain and grief and disappointment. And I think there's a sense in which God may have kept Paul from going into detail about what the thorn in the flesh was so that people of God for generations could relate to Paul here. Because we might say if we knew exactly what it was, oh, I've never experienced that. So, But it's broad, it's general. We know it was difficult. We know it was hard. And just like Newton wrote, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. But when Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh, when Newton talks about the dangers and the toils and the snares that we experience in life, where is God in that? How's the Lord supposed to, how are we supposed to understand the Lord in times like that? How are we supposed to think about God's grace when we're going through something that's painful? and disappointing, and grieves us. Well, notice Paul's wording here. He says in verse 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given to me. God 
gave this difficulty to Paul. The Lord brought about this hardship into Paul's life. It's also, in verse 7, called a messenger of Satan. Satan tried to work evil through it, but Satan's scheme cannot stop God's sovereign plan. The Lord sent this difficulty. So here's the deal. The same, the same God that gave Paul the incredible visions is the same God that sent Paul the thorn in the flesh. And Paul sees this hardship as coming from God and coming from God with a purpose. Both ends of verse 7, the beginning and the end, he says that God sent this to him to keep him from becoming conceited. He says it at the beginning and then at the very end of verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. The trials that the Lord sent into Paul's life were meant to humble him, were meant to keep him from thinking more highly of himself than he should. And the truth here is that the suffering Paul experienced was not random. The suffering he experienced had a purpose. God had a purpose in Paul's suffering. He has a purpose in your suffering and my suffering that we experience in this life. Our trials are never random. In God's plan, absolutely nothing is meaningless. Nothing. Though we may not always know what it is, God always acts with a purpose. He's, he always acts on purpose. He does what he does for specific reasons. Earlier in this letter, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 17, and he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Here's the purpose. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every day of your grief and every day of your sorrow and every moment of your misery is doing something. It's accomplishing something. More specifically, the Lord is accomplishing something through it. We may not know why, but we can trust he knows why. And be settled with that. John Newton knew this, and he once wrote in a letter to a friend who was, who was going through a difficult trial. He wrote, it's one of my favorite sentences from him or from, from anyone for that matter. He wrote, all shall work together for good. Here's the sentence I love. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. Anything God knows we need, he sends it. Anything he knows we don't need, he keeps from us. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. If you and I can take that sentence and keep it in our brain, there is a Bible full of truth and hope in that one sentence. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. But like many of us, Paul didn't immediately settle into, all right, I know this is from the Lord. Okay, thanks, Lord. I'm just going to keep going. That's not how Paul responded. That's not our normal response. Paul says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Over and over, Paul asked God to take it away. Whatever the hardship was, whatever the difficulty was, Paul pled with the Lord, please remove this from me. It's hard. It's difficult. It hurts. 
And you would think with a Christian, a pastor, a missionary as influential as Paul, you'd think he'd get a quick and favorable answer. But he didn't. Many of you have been in that same situation. Maybe you're in that same situation right now. God, please heal me. And he doesn't. God, please fix this. He doesn't seem to. God, please help here. And you feel like he's silent. But your prayer hasn't gone unheard or unanswered. God has a different answer. God has a different answer for Paul's prayer and often for our prayers, an answer that is greater anything we usually ask of him. And you're gonna, we're going to see that in the next section as we see God's grace in our waiting. God's purpose in our trials leads to God's grace in our waiting. And here's how Jesus answers Paul's prayer in verse 9. Paul pleaded with the Lord that it should leave him, and then verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul pleads and pleads and pleads and pleads. The Lord doesn't send him a miracle. Paul pleads and he doesn't send Paul another vision. Paul pleads, and the Lord sends him his grace. God didn't answer Paul's prayer by removing the trial from his life, but by giving Paul the grace he would need to endure the trial, to wait. We just sang this before the sermon. My soul will wait for you. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but... I trust you, so I'm going to wait and watch and learn. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. God's grace has brought me safe thus far. But I'm still waiting to see what he's doing. We learn from the Lord's words to Paul here that grace is not just God's saving action. It's not just the unearned salvation and forgiveness that he gives us. That would be more than we ever deserve. But it's also by his grace that we are sustained, that we are carried throughout our lives. This is God's response to our trials. Maybe if you're going through something, somebody may ask you, how how you responded to this? How are you doing? And those are good questions. But the Lord's response to our trials should shape our response to our own trials. And this is his response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So for those of you that are going through difficult things right now, or maybe it's not even something current, it's just the burden and the scars of something you have been through that you're still weighed down by, hear this over your life. Jesus saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, is in the present, right now, what you're going through. My grace is enough for you. Because I am with you, you have what you need. Just like we saw in Isaiah chapter 43 this morning, 
you heard this promise read, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He doesn't say you're not going to go through the waters. He doesn't say you're not going to go through the rivers. He doesn't say you'll never encounter the fires. He says you will, and he'll be with you. My grace is sufficient for you. So that helps us understand that when we think about how God's grace works in our suffering, God's grace at work in our suffering may not mean the suffering goes away. It may look like God's stable, faithful, ever-present grace carrying us through the suffering. He says in verse second part of verse 9 again, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, Jesus says to Paul. My power. This is not some random power, some just generic power. This is the power of Jesus that we see in his death and in his resurrection. Just the very next chapter of this letter, chapter 13, verse 4. Look what Paul says there. Chapter 13, verse 4. For he, talking about Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. This power is the power that conquered our sin on the cross and the power that brought Jesus back from the dead. Just as we sang earlier in in It Is Well, when we sang, when Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What's the the assurance? Is it the trial's going to end? Is it Satan's going to leave me alone? Is it things will eventually get easier? That's not the assurance in the song. The assurance is that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in weak, imperfect, struggling people like Paul and like you and like me. His power is made perfect. It's it's brought to completion in our weakness. So this is what is really meaningful to us right now, that Paul's weakness in his trials became the stage for God's grace and God's power to be on display because in our suffering, we come to realize the strength and security we all long for can't be found in us. The strength and security we all crave cannot be found in us. We are insufficient on our own. We are not enough on our own. Strength and security in life have to come from outside of us. Hope in life has to come from outside of us. And his grace in our weakness leads us to see that it's only his power and his strength. That's sufficient. So when the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, he's not saying, Paul, your power is good for about 75%, so let me bring in the other 25 and you'll be good. No, it's, Paul, your power, your strength is completely insufficient. My power is coming to hold you up, 
So this is not propping us up, but us surrendering to him and trusting him. That he knows what he's doing better than we know. And if we knew what he knows and we saw what he saw, we would do what he does and follow him. It sheds a lot of light, I think, on what John Newton meant when he said, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far." Think about that verse in the song. "'Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far.'" The words dangers, toils, and snares don't sound safe. But he says, God's grace has brought me safe thus far. It's because being in line with God's good plan in your life is the safest place to be. It may not feel safe. It may not look safe. But if we're in his hand, there's no better place to be. When we, like Paul, ask God to remove our suffering, and I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that. I'm not saying, God, I'm not saying we never pray, God, please heal, please take away. Please, I'm not saying we don't pray that. It's, it's good to pray those things. But we have to think about what we're ultimately asking for. If we pray, God, honor your name, God, glorify your name, God, grow your kingdom, that's one thing. But if we pray, God, honor your name, by healing me or her or him. God, glorify your name by fixing this. God, grow your kingdom by removing this obstacle. We may be thinking that we know better than God does on what's good for us. God may grant the end that we ask for in prayer, but he might use a different means than what we're expecting. So we pray, God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. He doesn't answer our exact prayer, but that doesn't mean he failed. Paul pleaded and pleaded and pleaded, and the Lord didn't take it away. So does that mean the Lord failed him? If I ask something from God, and I ask for it over and over, and it seems like why would he, if he's good and gracious and loving, why would he not fix this? Why would he not take this away? And he doesn't. Does that mean he failed? No. It's impossible for God to fail. He never fails. He may ask us to wait. But if he asks us to wait, you can guarantee he will give you the strength by his grace to wait. His grace will sustain you to keep waiting. And it's this truth that leads at the end to see God's power in our weakness. God's power in our weakness. And this is the conclusion that that Paul comes to. The Lord's words to Paul in verse 9 are the turning point of the whole passage. Paul goes from pleading with the Lord to take this away in verse 8. So what he says in verse 9, the middle of verse 9, he says, Therefore, because the Lord has said this to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's all-sufficient grace switches Paul from running from his weakness to boasting in his weakness. Who does that? That's strange, right? To boast in our weaknesses. 
You wouldn't go to a job interview and if they say, hey, what are your biggest strengths? You would say, well, hang on, I don't want to tell you about that. I'd like to tell you about my weaknesses. Uh, okay, you don't get the job. See you later. Like that wouldn't work out, right? But Paul's saying, not the same kind of weaknesses, but Paul's saying, I boast in my weaknesses. This is because Paul's realized that it's through his weaknesses that God's grace and power are most clearly seen by him and most clearly seen by those around him looking at him, at his life. That's what he means when he says, so that the power, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's not, crazy enough, it's not Paul's heavenly visions that offer the best view of Jesus' power. It's the trials and sufferings that he goes through that give him the best view of Jesus' power. The reason this is the case is because it's in our suffering and it's in our struggles that we are least reliant on ourselves. He says at the very end of our section here, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The weaknesses Paul lists out here, they're not sins. They're not ways that we disobey the Lord and his word. But they're just the difficulties of life that weigh us down. And Paul's not saying that it's no longer hard. He's not saying it's no longer painful. He's not saying he no longer wants it to be removed, necessarily. But he's saying he's content, he's satisfied with his weaknesses because his endurance through them brings more glory and spot and puts more spotlight on the power of Christ than if it was taken away. That's why he says, for the sake of Christ then. What I would do for my own sake may be one thing, but for the sake of Christ, I'm satisfied. I'm content with my weaknesses. So that means the goal of life then is not how can I go through life with the least inconvenience? but rather how can my short life best serve to bring glory and honor to Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. And whatever he sees fit, that's what I want. And Paul says at the end, summarizing the whole section, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This removes any chance of us as Christians trying to explain that when we have trials, it means God's not with us. Or that when life's hard, God's wrath is on us. It's not true. It's actually his grace showing us more of him and showing us more of our need of him. That's why Newton wrote, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. How could he say that? How could he be sure of that? He didn't know what was coming up. Over the next 34 years of his life from when he wrote that song to the day he died? What's because the same strong and sustaining grace that saved him, that sustained him, that carried him and brought him to that point in his life was going to bring him to the end. And in each trial, he found Jesus is enough over and over and over. When John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he didn't know what was to come in his life. There would be a lot of highs and lows ahead of him. And no low was lower for him than when he had to face the day of his wife's death. His wife, Polly, 
He met her when he was 17, she was 13, and he was infatuated with this girl. For those of you in this room, middle schoolers, high schoolers, if you think you have a crush, your crush is nothing compared to the way he had a crush on his now, who became his wife. He got in a lot of trouble because he was trying to spend time with her instead of doing the things he was supposed to be doing. And maybe some of you can attest to that. But they were married in 1750, and he adored her. They had a beautiful marriage. And he talked about, he would write to her when he was away speaking somewhere, and he said, every room just seems empty when you're not in it. I don't like when I'm somewhere and you're not there. But his wife, throughout their marriage, she had these ongoing health problems, constant, where she would be in bed for months at a time. And in the year 1790, she was diagnosed with cancer, and the doctors found this inoperable tumor in her body. And he watched his wife's long and painful battle with cancer. And on December 15th of 1790, he writes that he was sitting by her bed, holding a candle, praying for her, praying for him, praying for their family. And as he was praying, she passed away. On the one-year anniversary of her death, he was writing to a friend that was facing a similar circumstance. And that trial was still fresh in his memory. Every year on the anniversary of his wife's death, he would write in his journal or write a letter to a friend or write a hymn, just constantly rehearsing what the Lord taught him through all of that and what the Lord was teaching him through it. And he wrote to a friend, and he wrote of how God's grace sustained him in that. And you won't see this on the screen, but, but just listen to what Newton writes as he's reflecting on how God's grace was enough for him in that what he called his great trial, the greatest trial for him. He said, at length, the trial which I most dreaded came upon me. My right hand, that's what he often referred to Polly as, his right hand. My right hand was not chopped off at a stroke. It was sawn off by slow degrees. Talking about the way he just watched his wife slowly, slowly die. It was an operation of weeks and months almost every following week, more painful than the one before it. He says, but did I sink? Did I despond? Did I give up? He says, the Lord strengthened me and I was strong. I felt as much as I could well bear, but not too much. Then hear this last part. And to this hour, I only stand because I am upheld. To this hour, I only stand because I am upheld. God has purpose in our trials. His all-sufficient grace sustains us in our waiting. His power works in and through our weaknesses so we can endure the darkness because we know he will not let go. His grace will get us home no matter what happens between now and that day. 